November the 30th, 1960, just after midnight, and the security guard at an exclusive psychiatric clinic in Connecticut is about to get a surprise. Abe Dorfman remembers. It was raining like hell, and the wind was blowing so hard even the birds were walking. And through the storm, I could see me some lights coming down the road. Convoy. Well, only they weren't slowing down, no sir, not at all. And I was just unholstering my gun when the phone rang and a voice said, let him through, Abe. So I opened the gates and as these four big black cars swept past me, I thought to myself, man, that must be one special patient. The patient in question was a 14-year-old boy. His name has never been revealed. He was only ever referred to as patient 481. And patient 481 has passed into the annals of modern psychiatry. Dr. Kurt Niedermeyer was assistant director of the clinic. The patient was housed in a private suite in the most secure corner of the high-risk unit. And which psychiatric conditions was he suffering from? Well, um, pretty much all of them. In fact, psychiatrists flew in from all over the world to study him. Louise Jackson was a nurse who attended patient 481. The biggest challenges were his um, narcissism and, and the paranoia. His room had a big picture window, and about a hundred yards away, there was a maple tree, and an owl often roosted in that tree. And patient 481 became convinced the owl was staring at him. So he would write long letters to the owl, demanding that it desist. Letters which he would hand to us to deliver to the owl. Dr. Niedermeyer remembers how quickly this obsession escalated. Well, as I recall, he became enraged by the lack of response from the owl, uh, who he nicknamed Disrespectful Owl. And he took to sitting up all night, writing angry letters to our medical team denouncing this owl. In fact, he wrote one such letter to me, uh, which I have here. Well, could you read it to us? Uh, well, it's over 30 pages long, but uh, well, here's a typical section. <clears throat> this owl is a failed bird, who I'm told was always an overrated bird of prey, and who, and many people are saying this, is a loser, who has not caught a single mouse for so many years now, by the way, and who is now a disgrace to the once great order of owlhood. Is it just me? Or are we nuts to tolerate these disrespectful, out-of-control owls? Professor Kevin Duplessis is a neuroscientist. He performed a brain scan on patient 481. Normally, when you perform a brain scan, certain areas of the brain light up when certain stimuli are applied. But this wasn't the case with patient 481. No, his whole brain lit up all the time. It was like a Christmas tree, permanently. In response to what stimuli? Any stimuli. 
the, the slightest trigger caused a massive psychological disturbance. In the end, his brain actually broke our scanner. I've never seen a brain like that. But the paradox seemed to be that although the brain was intensively active, it never actually produced a coherent thought. And it was this anomaly that meant we were so keen to study him. So what was the eventual fate of patient 481? On the night of March 11th, 1961, we had a power outage when some inebriated bikers collided with our electrified perimeter vents and... In the subsequent confusion, several patients escaped, including patient 481, who I understand was never found. Soon, patient 481 became the subject of various conspiracy theories. Uh, inevitably, of course, on the internet, all sorts of theories have sprung up concerning this patient. Some have claimed that he was some kind of alien life form, haven't they? <laughs> Indeed, they have. Others have suggested he was a child who escaped from some secret government-run eugenics laboratory. I know, absurd. And, and some maintain that patient 481 was, in fact, the 14-year-old Donald Trump. I couldn't attest to that. So, it is possible. I couldn't attest to that. It seems like we know so much now about President Trump. He's on our TV screens constantly. But how much do we really know about him? In the hall of mirrors that is fake news, it's so hard to know what's real and what's mischievous invention. In this podcast, I'm setting out to penetrate beneath the surface, to unravel the mysteries at the core of Donald Trump. I'm Michael Burke, and I'm going inside Donald Trump. Of course, one of the great challenges of exploring the interior of President Trump is that his exterior is both dazzling and bewildering. He is so many different things to different people. Waylon Johnson is a regional organiser of Bikers for Trump. When I look at Donald Trump, what I see is an alpha male, leader of the pack. And an alpha male dominates or destroys other males sexually preys on all the females and kills all the young of other males and that my friend is what america needs the us of a needs to start killing the babies of other males jeanette boulders chairs housewives for trump in mr trump i see the man who saved america he's pro-life he's god-fearing he's a patriot and he whipped that evil witch hillary clinton you didn't approve of hillary clinton no sir i do not why is that I told you, she's a witch. Uh, she cooks children in ovens. Well. I saw the pictures on the internet. I have them on my phone. Oh, there she is, see? Shoveling those poor kids into that oven. Why don't the bastards on CNN ever report on that, huh? I think we all know why. I'm here at one of President Trump's weekly rallies, and I'm surrounded by people festooned in pro-Trump badges. You, sir, can I ask, when you look at Donald Trump, what do you see? I see someone who's going to stand up to the Jews. Has he said he'll do that? No, but he looks like he might. Right. And you, madam, what do you see? Authenticity. He is what he is. And what is he? He's what he is, and not something else that he isn't. That's what he is. He's a successful billionaire. Yeah, he's one of us. 
He's not part of the elite. Well, he does live in a golden tower, and he's gonna take us forward to what America was. He's gonna bring change. Alpha change. His coming is prophesied in the book of Ezekiel. He's a winner. God sent him. He's gonna destroy the Washington elite. He's gonna drain the swamp. And impale Hillary with a silver dagger. When people look at Donald Trump, clearly they see what they want to see. So how do we get to the reality of the man? Well, like all stories, it begins at the beginning, his childhood. He was born into great wealth. His father, Fred Trump, was a successful New York property magnate and was clearly a huge influence on the future president. Gary Schneider is an estranged cousin of Donald Trump. What does he remember of Donald's father? Well, Fred, um, he was quite a demanding personality. Uh, he covered the walls of the children's bedrooms with motivational slogans like uh, be killers, be kings, and pictures of wolves devouring their prey. It was that kind of stuff. He was a firm believer in Darwinism, wasn't he? Oh, yeah. Uh, he believed that the world divides into winners and losers. Uh, it was survival of the fittest, and he, he, he constantly drove that message home to all four boys. Four boys? Yeah. I thought there were only three sons. No, there were four sons. Uh, Donald, Fred, Robert, and Maximilian. Or uh, Max. Max was a very likable kid. He was very helpful and very gentle and caring, so his dad hated him. He used to call him the runt. What happened to Max? Well, uh, we're not really sure. Uh, around his seventh birthday, his dad took him away on a road trip, and uh, he never came back. Uh, I mean, within the family, there were all sorts of rumors. Some said that Fred Sr. had sold Max to a childless couple in Patagonia. Others said that he'd abandoned him on an uninhabited island, or possibly left him on a mountainside full of bears. Anyway, from that day forward, the Trumps never mentioned Max again. All trace of him was expunged from the records, and to this day, I can guarantee that if you tried to talk to Donald about his lost brother Max, he would tell you categorically that no such person ever existed. But if he was abandoned, well, that's awful. Well, yes, to you or me, but I suppose the way Fred Trump saw it was that if you abandon one of your sons, then the other three raise their game. Obviously, given that there is no record of Max the Lost Brother, it's impossible for us to verify this story. So we cannot categorically state that it is true in any conventional sense. But we just felt it was important to get the story out there as part of the public conversation. Betsy Schneider is Gary's sister. She's the same age as her cousin Donald, and when they were little, they used to play together. I asked her what she remembers of that time. Crying. That's all I remember. He was a total crybaby, constantly belly aching. Well, my toy car isn't gold enough. My arms are too long. They make my hands look small. I used to beg my mom not to take me around there. It was horrific. So, when did he grow out of it? You tell me. Anything else you remember? Yeah, he was a biter. You're still in contact? What, are you kidding? He hasn't spoken to me since Thanksgiving Day 1958, when we were both aged 11. And what was the cause of the rift? I beat him at ping pong. Yeah, suck it up, Donald. You heard me. Part of me feels sorry for the young Donald Trump. It couldn't have been easy for him growing up in the shadow of his father. But what of his mother, Mary McLeod? He always speaks of her with warmth and great pride. He often mentions her humble Scottish roots. 
how she grew up in the town of Stornoway on the island of Lewis. I travelled to Stornoway to meet Agnes and Murdo McGill, now both in their late 90s, to hear their memories of the young Mary MacLeod. Oh, now I well, she was a bonny wee thing, Mary MacLeod, because we were at school with her, weren't we? I used to like you reading the news. Uh, thank you. If, if, oh, not if like could... now, though. The, the, the newsreaders, they, they, they keep smiling. They do, they're all too smiling. They're showing their teeth. I've too far, teeth. far too many teeth. No need to. No yes, if I could just ask you, what specific memories do you have of the young Mary MacLeod? Well, she was a very cheery wee girl yeah. one day. And, oh, I <laughs> shall love to. Puffins. puffins. Oh, she loved the puffins. She did mad about them. Right. She was all right. day long. Yep. Puffins, 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 puffins. She had a thing about puffins. Aye, she never ate anything else. She ate puffins. Aye. Were puffins part of the local diet then? No, no, it was just her. Right. I, I must say, I didn't realise there were puffins in this part of Lewis. Well, there aren't, no. But your abiding memory of Mary is of a happy little girl. Happy? Oh, yes, I can picture her now with that lovely broad smile, rosy cheeky, <laughs> she had twinkling eyes and feathers stuck between her teeth. I don't like Fiona Bruce when she reads the news. She's always showing her elbows. She's partial to her. Elbow. And, uh, and after Mary left for America, did you stay in touch with her? Oh, I will. She wrote every once in a while, and when she gave birth to me, Donald, she did send us a photo of the Bobby. And what were your impressions? Oh, well, you know, all Bobbies look pretty much the same, don't they? But this one was hideous. Uh, Like some wee cursed monster carved out of potato. Only with a minuscule hands. And a mouth like a goat's arse. Oh, like a goat's arse it was. Oh, dear. Do you still have the photo? Good God, no. Oh, no, you can't keep something like that in the house. No, no, it went straight under the fire, didn't it? It went right under the fire. Burning green for green. From Donald Trump's own account, we know that the cheery wee girl from Stornoway was a loving and attentive mother. He's often remarked that he inherited his energy from her. And someone who remembers that energy well is Dean Burbage, who was at elementary school with the young Donald. Donald was an amazing kid. Well, he's an amazing guy, so uh, I've known him from, like, uh, when we were seven years old, so... And what sort of kid was he? Well, uh, self-confident, physically assertive, kind of bitey, but terrific company. A great guy and still a true friend of mine, yeah. In fact... I have this tape of him giving a speech at my wedding to my second wife in 1978. You want to hear that? Absolutely. Okie dokie. Dear, there we go. I've known Dean so long. He's a beautiful, beautiful guy. So beautiful you would not believe it. And his lovely wife is so, so lovely. And she's got... What the fuck is wrong with this f***ing microphone? The f***ing mic keeps Jesus f***ing Christ, Dean. Which f***ing loser installed this? It's Donald f***ing Bull. I'm not standing for this f***ing one... This f***ing... Sh- f*** you. F***ing electronics. I bet it's German. This so he wasn't, wasn't exactly a conventional best man. Oh, he wasn't best man. 
No, he just decided to get up and make a speech, but uh, that's Donald, mm. you know. I mean, technically speaking, he wasn't actually invited to the wedding. But once Donald's made up his mind to do something, well, nothing stops him. Yeah. And he made it a very memorable day because, you know, as you can see from these wedding photos, he really threw himself into the party. There he is. There's me uh, and Donald. Yeah. There's Donald with the bridesmaids. Mm -hmm. There's the bridesmaids running. That's uh, There's the cops, the bridesmaids called. Oh, <laughs> It's never dull with a Donald. Is that is that him punching a policeman? <laughs> oh, his dad had to take care of that. Someone else who remembers Donald Trump as a school kid is Frank Levis, who was a sports teacher at Westwood High School. Donald loved to compete. <clears throat> to him, it was about winning. So he won a lot? Oh, no, not at all. He pretty much came last at everything. I remember in the athletics, he used to insist on taking part in the 1,500 meters. And, uh, well, it was invariably dark when he finished, and one of the teachers always had to wait behind. We used to draw straws. <coughs> so when he didn't win, how did he react? Well, he got gold medals minted, which stated he had one, and he would insist on showing them to you, constantly. Sometimes he would follow you home. Did he interact with the other kids? Yeah, there was a lot of interacting. And is it true that he struggled academically? A lot of people have remarked that they'd never seen him with a book in his hand. Uh, no, my memory is he often had a book in his hand, just before he threw it. Right, so in your estimation, did he have any qualities? Qualities? Yes, relentlessness. He was relentless. Never went quiet, never stopped. He'd just grind you down day after day. And when he left the school, what exam qualifications did he leave with? I don't know. I'd already quit teaching by then. Somebody with a far more positive impression of the young Donald Trump is Lavinia Parker. She's a retired headmistress who now lives in Godalming in Surrey. But for several months in 1958, she was Donald Trump's full-time tutor. I found him to be a lively and most interesting child. He had a very unusual take on things. Saw the world in a highly original way. Why wasn't he attending school? Well, my memory is that there'd been some kind of incident involving the principal's pet owl and some kerosene, but it's a, it's a little hazy. So, uh, did you teach young Donald all the academic disciplines. Well, after a while, I, I didn't bother with any sciences because he didn't like the factual element. Found it too limiting. Just made him angry. Oh, yes, and I decided not to bother with French. Why was that? Well, it's extremely difficult to start teaching French to a child who tells you that he already speaks French and that he's got lots of beautiful awards from France for his terrific French. Right. So... Were there any subjects that he did embrace? Oh, yes, history. He loved history. He wrote long, highly stimulating essays about history. Can you remember any of them? Um, well, yes. There was a very impassioned one about the, um, the Battle of the Little Bighorn, which he argued that General Custer had won, but that the numbers were misreported. 
He said Custer won. Yes, he loved Custer. Saw him as the perfect leader. Worshipped Custer. Modelled his hair on Custer. It was very sweet. I can see him now dressed in his little cavalry uniform, chasing the maid with his sword held aloft. Yes, he definitely had something about him. Donald Trump's early years certainly appear to have been something of a roller coaster. But there was one defining moment, an epiphany, if you like, when he discovered what was to become one of the great passions of his life. Golf. Dean Burbage again. I remember Donald was around at our house and my dad was watching the US Open on the TV. And well, Donald wasn't really showing any interest in the golf until, well, my, my dad told him how golf is unique because it is the only sport where you get to fill out your own scorecard. And uh, Donald looked at him and asked him to repeat what he just said. And then Donald sort of, well, you know, his, his face lit up. And the next thing we knew, he'd headed to the sports shop, bought himself a set of golf clubs, and then he headed for the local course where, for the very first time, he played 18 holes and went round in 47. I don't think I've ever seen anyone look so happy. The young Donald might have discovered one of the abiding passions of his life, but he continued to have problems settling at various educational establishments. So he was moved from school to school, usually after quite a short stay, until eventually his parents decided to enrol him at a naval academy. Henry Spackman was a naval lieutenant who taught at the academy. He remembers Donald Trump as a cadet. Donald had a lot going for him, a hell of a lot. He was ambitious, dynamic, determined, and he was proud to wear the uniform. In fact, it was quite hard to get him to take the uniform off sometimes, <clears throat> and we did have to tell him he couldn't sort of customize it with gold epaulettes. But no, all in all, he was an, an enthusiastic and <clears throat> uh, creditable cadet. Creditable? Yeah, I mean, maybe there's a few aspects of military protocol he struggled with. Can you give me an example? Well, um, he had a problem with the whole concept of a uh, superior officer. Just couldn't get his head around it. <laughs> Drove the drill sergeant crazy. The sarge would order, I was right. And Donald would say that was a bad command and that he would replace it with a better command because nobody issued better commands than he did. And Well, it was a bit disruptive, but... Right. You know, Donald was a strong-minded kind of guy and we always knew he'd make a splash. And did you have any problems with him? No, I liked the guy. He was fun. <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, there was a little incident during a navigation class when he had the wheel, and I pointed out that he was steering the craft a little too close to some rocks, and I asked him to look at the charts, and <clears throat> he said he didn't need the charts. He had alternative charts. Alternative charts? Yeah, inside his head. <laughs> sort of instinctive ones. But hey, in the end, everything was fine, and his dad paid for a new boat, so it wasn't an issue. Back then, did, did you ever imagine that that young cadet would one day become the President of the United States? Well, you know, if Donald got criticized, he'd always say, I'm going to be President one day, then you'll be sorry. He was right. Yeah, he was right. 
As I drew to the end of my mission to illuminate the inner workings of Donald Trump the boy, it had left me with more questions than answers. Was he the mysterious patient 481? Was his personality shaped or even damaged by the ghost of his abandoned brother, his father's Darwinian mottos, or even watching his mother devour seabirds? But my journey inside the young Donald Trump was to take one final dramatic turn. One last revelation was waiting, in the attic of Murdo and Agnes McGill. They had taken me up there to hunt for the letters that the young Mary McLeod had written home over 90 years ago. Honey, I think they're in this box behind the Andy Stewart LP. Andy Stewart. I hated him. Oh, now here they are. Yes, letters from Mary. All oh, right. Him and his white heather club. Hey, let's see now. Yes. bloody hogmany grinning like a tartan jackany. Oh, yes, and here's the one where she describes her first encounter with her husband-to-be. <laughs> He's a brawl-looking laddie with tiny, delicate wee hands like a marmosette. Here's one where she asked me to send a few boxes of tea and some dried puffin. Oh, aye, and I remember this one now. She wrote this breaking the news that she'd given birth to wee Donald. Oh, right. A historic document, then. I see. Well, it wasn't an easy birth. Nineteen hours, because she had the Bobby on a business trip with her husband. Right. Yeah, she's not very complimentary about the hospital in Baghdad. Baghdad? Aye. In Iraq? Aye, yes. So, according to this, Donald Trump was born in Iraq? Well, seems so, aye. Was it called Iraq, then? They keep on changing the names of these countries, don't they? So they do. That's my old wooden golf club. Oh, now, Myrtle, put those down. I'm looking at this letter, and it seems genuine. And, of course, it could be a bombshell revelation which could raise all sorts of major constitutional questions about the legitimacy of Donald Trump's presidency. Following the discovery of that letter, we've contacted the White House, asking if we could see a copy of the President's birth certificate. So far, they've declined to respond. In the next episode, I'll be moving on from Trump the boy to Trump the man. Everyone has got the Donald all wrong. He is a magical person. And I just lost consciousness because the sex was just too fantastic. Well, initially, Mr. Trump was uncertain if he wanted to get involved in a reality TV show because, well, I think he was put off by the word reality. Join me next time as I go Inside Donald Trump. Inside Donald Trump was created by Andy Hamilton and presented by Michael Burke. It was edited by Andy Goddard and John Harvey and produced by Claire Broughton. Our talented team of contributors included Ronnie Ancona, Kevin Bishop, Hugh Dennis, Dimitri Garitas, Corey Johnson, Lorelai King, Lewis McLeod, Jimmy Mulville, Philip Pope and Claire Skinner. The associate producers on the project were David Griffiths, Douglas Penman, Helen Russell, Georgina Lippiet, Robert Cole, Nick Walpole, Laura Bregevin, 
Verity Vizlocki, Colin Bond, Christopher Collingridge, Jeff Patterson, John Wood, Jan O'Malley, Elric Williams, Yvonne Maddox, Julian Benton, and Amro Jabril. With special thanks to John Mitchison and Matthew Clayton. Inside Donald Trump is a hat-trick production for Unbound.